jumping straight to it, this is a section we're going to break up a little bit. Uh, we look at verse 33 where Jesus speaks, and then verse 46 where he sums up everything he's been saying. He's in the middle of a dialogue with scribes and Pharisees. And they just uh, tried to rebuke him for uh, healing a demoniac who was not able to speak and see. He was mute and blind. And Jesus uh, released him. He was free. They saw that. They saw the miracle he performed. And then they began to say it was because of Beelzebul, demon, the prince of demons, that he cast out demons. The saying that the spirit by which he operated in, the spirit by which he accomplished these great miracles was not the Holy Spirit, but some other unclean, evil spirit. That was the indictment that led Jesus to say this. He said in verse 33, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And then they say to him, we seek a sign from you. And he said, no other sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Speaking to his resurrection, which we looked at last week for Easter. At the end, he stops and ends this discussion. In verse 46, he says, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. And he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so this is Jesus' words to his disciples, and he ends by gesturing toward those around him who are interested in what he's talking about, interested in his business. He's saying, these, these people right here, right now, these are my family. These are my real family. He's speaking of the true family of God because uh, there's a difference between physical family and spiritual family. We know the difference, obviously, when we get together, even with uh, extended family, only one generation removed, or maybe you have family across state lines that you don't see very often. When you get together... It's nice, it's good, but they're really not in your life, right? You're actually doing something else. And um, you might actually not have a lot in common, aside from the fact that you're genetically related in a close way. You might actually be very different people, and you might share closer affinity toward uh, a group of people or people in your church who love the Lord particularly, or anyone interested in some particular hobby or thing you're at. Because I, I think this, and I've heard this said once, and I think it's true, Everybody has to be a nerd at something. I mean, we all, you all have to raise your hand and say you're a nerd somewhere, right? Um, but by nerd, I mean you like have this specialized, weird knowledge on one issue that you just like. You know, like I know if I want to talk 
about conspiracy theories, I know who to go to. Let's just say that. We all know who to go to if you want to talk about conspiracy theories. There's someone that's all down that path, or someone's really into fly fishing, or someone's really into bowling, or, you know, like, we all have to be a nerd somewhere, right? But when when you find those people, those are called your people, right? And you all, like, get together and do your nerd thing together, right? And everyone else is like, what's wrong with you people? You know, but... But they don't know that they're a nerd for something else. And they're looking at you saying, why would you, why were you guys all about this? You know, so we all have to be a nerd somewhere, all right? This is really, I think, what Jesus is getting at. There's a movie I watched called uh, The Big Year. And it's kind of, a, it's a pretty funny movie. Um, and I'm a, I'm a bad movie critic. If I'm telling you this movie is kind of funny, I usually, I've never seen a movie I, I liked. After Braveheart, it was all downhill. I'm just going to say that. Um, but no, the, um, the, it's called The Big Year. Uh, three men, they love bird watching. And it's hilarious because what they do, the big year is you're supposed to find as many birds, many species of birds as you can. Uh, and that's called your big year. If you can be the guy that finds the most species of bird, you get to be called that guy. I don't think they even win any money. It's like the craziest movie. It's so silly. It's like, it's, it's so bizarre that they're doing this. They're traveling all across the world to get all these species of birds. Um, but what's funny is you see the dynamics because... Uh, one guy by, I think, Owen Wilson played the guy who was a married man. He was, like, neglecting his family to look, up, look for birds, right? And you just watch it, and you're like, this guy's ridiculous. And then you have another guy, uh, Steve Martin. He was a retired executive, gave up all his big, big-time job, big-time money, just wanted to go look at birds the rest of his life, right? And then you had Jack Black, who was the live-in adult son who just never could get his life together, and he was all fascinated with just looking for birds. But as you watch the movie play out, you realize everybody else in their life their families, their friends would just look at them. And the, the point of the, the comedic relief of the movie was all the normal people were like, what are you doing? You're giving, first off, you're a live, you're, you're a live in with your, your parents and you're an adult and you're looking for birds. You need to go out and get your life sorted out. Another guy's wrecking his marriage over birds. The, the comedic relief is all there. But within the community of those three men was the movie, right? That they were all different than their families but connected in this one affinity. They really, really liked this hobby, and they had community and fellowship there that they couldn't find anywhere else, and the rest of their families and everyone else thought that was pretty weird. Right? That, that is what Jesus is saying. Right? That is exactly what Jesus is saying. He's speaking about the true family tree. It's a tree. It's a real family tree. It has a very long lineage, but it cannot be traced through Ancestry.com. You can't do it 23 and me. You can't swab your mouth and find it. You're not going to be able to know who it is through your chromosomal DNA. It's a spiritual, a spiritual union that many have had throughout the times of human history that have been united to God by the Spirit. And they had an alien affinity. They had a love for the holy. They had a desire for the one true God. And the rest of even their families, their closest brothers or sisters, look at them and say, what is wrong with you? Why do you love Jesus so much? Because that is the true family of God. Every other family will waste away. There is one family that will last forever. And this is the true family tree. It's actually very simple the way Jesus lays it out. He says, a tree is not known by its fruit. He said, you could make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or you can make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. 
He says, it is all about the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The heart there is the essence of your humanity. What makes you, you, right? What actually determines your behavior? Whatever you do, that's showing you your heart. You don't need to cut open your body. You don't need to try to find this immaterial soul, suke, whatever the philosophers have always been trying to find, the union of the physical with the spiritual. Whatever that is, the Hebrew scriptures would call the heart. And you can't find it. You can't locate it. But you know it. Because whatever you do is coming from that place. Your heart. It determines your behavior. So whether you like bird watching, basketball, or blasphemy, it's because of your heart. And so as these Pharisees were close enough to blaspheming the Holy Spirit, saying that Jesus' miracles were the result of satanic powers, he pauses them and says, now you are on thin ice. What you say now should not be taken very lightly. From out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you are going to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that is saying you are not of the Holy Spirit. Because out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. He refers to them as a brood of vipers, snakes. How can you speak good since you are evil? See how simple that is? It's that simple for Jesus. Evil people do evil things. Good people do good things. It's no more complicated than that. The only difference is all of us are evil and all of our good deeds are filthy rags. None of us do good, but if there ever was a good person, he would be doing good. You will know a tree by its fruits. So he calls them a brood of vipers and he says that they are doing evil because they are evil. Vipers by nature produce venom. They have two sacks on the back of their head. These glands that are full of venom. The copperhead of a snake comes from that venom. It actually orients the shape of their head. That when those teeth come out, when those fangs bite down, both of the abundance of those glands gives forth. Right Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of these poisonous glands, poison just flows. It just flows right out. Do you see how he's calling them that? He says, that is who you are in the spiritual realm. They're not spewing venom, but the words that come out of their mouth are poison because they are snakes and poisonous in their core. See, from our heart, our heart are like those glands. Our heart holds this evil, sinister venom. And from that, we sin against God. And against men with our mouths. We are venomous. We are venomous. This is his indictment. No one would ever want this job uh, to be a, an actual snake milker. You, you've seen on TV those people that grab the snake and they put it on some type of can or something. And they actually push down on those glands in the back and try to get all the venom out into a jar or a petri dish. They, they use it for uh, research. They take the venom and create medication and drugs and anticoagulants and heart meds from that. So it's actually a real job. I don't think anyone, they do it hopefully with, with some, I, that, hope, is there training for that? I don't know. I mean like well, Bob just lost his job. Where's Bob? Don't ask questions. Here's your snake. And so like, it's just the next person. You know, I don't know. But somebody milks these snakes and they push and they push on these glands. Right? Now that is what Jesus is saying is the essence of our being. 
Those little glands in the back is like our heart. What happens is the pressures and the stresses of this life, God comes and just pushes on your heart. And then you say that thing you shouldn't have said to your wife. You see? That's exactly what he's... He pushes and he stresses you and he tests you, not because he doesn't know what's in you. He knows what's in you. You don't know what's in you. And then when he milks this sin out of you, it comes out and you're like, where did that come from? Is that you? And, and he's saying, yes, that is it. That's what I'm trying to get out of you. How do you do that though? Because he says, the reality is, a good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. Not all of it's bad. That is, there actually could be good that comes out of you. This famous quote from Charles Spurgeon, he references a man named John Bunyan, who was a famous Puritan who wrote a book you might have heard called Pilgrim's Progress. He spoke about John Bunyan and said, Prick him anywhere, and you will find his blood is bibline. The very essence of the Bible flows from him. He cannot speak without quoting a text, for his soul is full of the word of God. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing for someone to say about you? If you were to just prick his finger... He would bleed the word of God. He's full from from out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. It could be that way too, you see. It doesn't have to be poison. We could be full of holy things. And even when you are tested and pushed and prodded, what comes out is this glorious work that God has been doing inside of you. It is a treasure hidden in jars of clay. The world cannot see the glorious work he's doing in your heart. But with through persecutions or trials or temptations, sometimes it breaks out. That's the treasure. That's the treasure. Some have this good inside of them. A good person, he says, has good treasure and he brings forth good. An evil person has evil treasure and he brings forth evil. Treasure and heart are related. Matthew 6 Jesus says, lay up treasure not on earth where moth and rust destroy, but lay up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you love, desire, what determines your affections is also because of what you desire in your heart. Your heart actually determines your behavior, but also your treasure determines the object of your heart. What your heart is looking toward. The eye of your soul, that is. If you wanted to be um, a Buddhist, you'd say something like your, your, your middle eye. That, that, that eye of your mind. Now, what the actual biblical worldview is, we call that the heart, the eyes of the heart. Right? And if the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? See, there's a certain type of light that comes into the eye of your spirit, that if you actually have a pure vision, an oplos vision, the Greek word in Matthew 6, a single vision that you're looking to Jesus, then your heart is pure because you're looking straight to the light of Christ and all your motivations and all the things that you ever want are out here and it's gone. All you want is Christ. Live or die, Christ. Car, Christ. House, Christ, it doesn't matter. Anything in this world has no bearing on your soul. All you want is Christ. And if you have that single vision on Christ, then your heart is pure. If you lose that vision and you look to the right or the left to the things of this world, your heart becomes messed up. And he says you can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve two masters, money or God. You can only look to him. And so if you have your treasure on Christ, then your heart is pure. If your heart is pure, then when someone pricks you, what comes out is Christ. 
Out of the abundance of your heart, as you're feeding upon him, day by day, looking to him, that's what comes out. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The dangerous thing or the scary thing of all of this, we will be judged by our treasures. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. By your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. It was um, about a week and a half ago, we had a Monday-Thursday service here, where we referenced uh, Francis Schaeffer had this analogy, and it is very appropriate here. As Jesus says, on the day of judgment, people will have to give an account for every careless word they've ever spoken. Francis Schaeffer said that imagine a baby is born with a tape recorder wrapped around its neck. A hidden, invisible tape recorder. And from the beginning of life, that tape recorder runs. And now, let's say, this child grows. And year by year, everything that's ever been said, every moral judgment that's ever been uttered, saying that shouldn't be the case, you shouldn't do that, they shouldn't say this, they shouldn't do that with their children, they shouldn't do that with the way they watch movies or whatnot. Any moral judgment or value, how do they manage their money? You're judging other people based on how they live their life, the persnickety stuff, the religious people stuff, where you're not really stuck on the word of God, but you just are so, so, so happy to give your opinion. So happy to say what you think is the case. All that stuff's recorded. And, and then what happens? You, never, you don't know anything about God's word. You don't know anything about God's moral commandments. And then he would say, well, why, you, you can't judge me. I, don't even, I didn't even know your word. I never read the Bible. I, so, all right, fine. All God does is he takes a tape recorder and he just hits play. And you stand there for a long time. That is, spanning everything you've said in the whole course of your life. And every moral judgment and every value statement that is ever uttered forth from your mouth, he simply says, now I will judge you by your own standard. Everything you've said will either condemn you or will either justify you. You and I all know you first off, I already know what I'm going to say. And you all know this is true. We would all be in a lot of trouble. A lot of trouble. We would go like this. Put our hand over our mouth and condemn ourselves to death. By our own words. See that? Jesus isn't just condemning people to condemn people. We condemn ourselves. To death. By our own standards. This holding of the mouth. What have you and I ever said in our life? Think about this for a healthy church. What have you and I ever said about anyone in this room that we wouldn't say to their face? That's scary. That's exactly what he's talking about. That is, that is the scary thing of judgment. Romans 3, 19. 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. How's that? Whatever the law says, you mean the Jewish Old Testament law that like mostly only the Jews knew? Whatever the law says, so that every mouth may be stopped, so that everybody will stand before the throne of God and cover their face and not have one argument or objection against him. That the whole world may be accountable to God. Wait a minute. How could the whole world be accountable to God based on a particular legal ethical system of an ancient Jewish people? The tape recorder. Because we all know the law. You don't have to read the book. You know enough already to condemn yourself. That's the problem. And then we would say to God, no, I didn't know that. And then he played a tape recorder. But then why did you say this? Oh, because you did know it was wrong to steal such and such. But we steal in such and such. So at any point you judge another, you condemn yourself. This is the predicament. Romans 2 goes on, therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges for passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show the work of the law written on their hearts. We've been talking about hearts a lot. We're going to go back to that. On the heart is written that law, while their conscience also bear witness, and their conflicting thoughts excuse or accuse them. On the day when, according to my gospel, Paul says, God judges the secrets of men's hearts. That is, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that he judges your secrets. The only reason it's good news that he would judge every secret thought or word you've ever had is because it's Jesus judging every single thought or word that you've ever had. If it was anyone else judging your thoughts and words, there is no gospel because no one can deal with your sin. According to my gospel, Paul says, he will judge every secret of men. But he's also the one who died and rose again. He lived a righteous life for you that if you were to call upon him by your words, you could be justified by professing faith in Christ. We must not lift our hands against God in this way. By virtue of our creation, we are all created in a law covenant with God. By virtue of creation, the same laws that hold gravity together are the same laws that hold moral fabric together. The same laws that help you drive your car tomorrow are the same laws that you break every day morally with your mouth, words, and deeds. You can't avoid that. You're in God's world. It's his sandbox. Everything you do is in his world. And he will judge us all according to that. There is no good news apart from the fact that the one who sits on that throne is Jesus Christ. The law of God was written on the heart. But the treasure that is in our heart is what overflows. It's not what's on our heart, it's what's in our heart. Right? So we know enough that we have the law written on our heart. We know enough about the moral commands of God that we say them every day. But what does Jesus say? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
So really, it's not what's on our heart, what's chiseled on the outside. For example, if you were to look at an old courthouse or go down to D.C., you're going to find Scripture chiseled all over the courthouse. But when you go into the courthouse, well, I don't have anything to say about that. We all know what's inside D.C. It's called a swamp, and Jesus is talking about snakes. You make the connections. But the reality is this. On the outside, the law is all chiseled there. On the inside, there's corruption. Now, if we were to say that, we, 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 make, we laugh and make, make fun of political corruption. But that's us, you see. That's just us without their power, right? They're just humans. And so are you and I. And that's a macrocosm of our microcosm. Our microcosm is that on the outside of our heart, our chiseled God's moral law. And we present it, and we prop it up, and we say it and declare it, and then we go do opposite, you see. For from the abundance of our heart, we actually speak contrary. From the abundance of our heart comes corruption, poison, sin. It's an outside-inside problem. This is what Jesus' indictment was to the Pharisees. You are whitewashed tombs. You are the cleanest, prettiest tombs that hold dead bones. You have nothing good inside, but you look amazing on the out. We have the law on the outside. We have death on the inside. We need the Holy Spirit. And Jesus knew what he was doing. The reason he is preaching of the Spirit like this, the reason we should be surprised by the Holy Spirit, and what the mission of Jesus the Messiah was, is that he knew he was fulfilling. He was working out the promises of Ezekiel 36, where he said, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. And I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways and my statues, and be careful to obey all my rules. Do you see how the Spirit changes everything? What the Spirit comes in, side that dusty old dead tomb of our heart, with the law of God condemning us, chiseled on the outside, because we cannot avoid our Creator. It's written into our own moral fabric. He has put His identity, He has chiseled His markings all over our dead tombs, but inside the tomb is death. And we can never perform the laws that were commanded for us on the outside. And so he said, I will come and I will put my spirit in you. It's not just a matter of having the law outside of us. We need the spirit inside of us. It's not just a matter of having the law on us. We need the spirit to come out from us so that we, and the promise was, so that you will walk in my statutes and obey all my rules. That's the only way to change it. Because Jesus clearly said, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. But the problem, the problem is, how do you make a tree good? If I go out here and find a jagger bush, and I go over here and find an apple tree, the jagger bush will give me nothing except pricks and thorns. But a good tree, like an apple tree, will give me fruit to eat. But how do I? Make a jagger bush, a bramble, a useless plant, produce beautiful fruit that gives food for life. Well, it's easy to see the problem. It's impossible to fix. There's no other way to do this except the same spirit that made the world from beginning, that made all the different plants and animals we see, has to be the same spirit that regenerates us from the inside out. There is nothing short here of a recreative miracle. That is the only way to make good trees produce good fruit. Because if we're bad trees, and we all know we are, we know all we have left is bad fruit. There's nothing left for us to have. And so Jesus speaks about his own family tree. 
And he says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser in John 15. Abide in me and I in you. A branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Every branch that does not abide in me withers and is thrown away. As my father loved me, so I have loved you. Do you see what's happening through the spirit? The same sap that runs through the branches of all the trees is like the spirit that runs through your soul. That through the name of Jesus, if you call upon the name of Jesus, he is the Messiah with all the spirit given without measure. That he distributes the spirit down to you. You are born again, born from above, born by the spirit. And he implants his spirit inside you so that there is a spiritual union. You are actually grafted into the vine. You are connected to the life and you grow. You are brought into the spiritual family tree. You are among all, all the nerds that love Jesus. You see? And the rest of the world says, why? Why do you love Christ? Why do you care to obey him in every aspect of your life? Been born from above. You have a new family. This is where he has this shocking statement. While speaking, his mother and brother came to him, seeking his attention. And he says so dismissively, who is my mother and my brother? Stretching his hands to his disciples, he said, these are my mother and my sister, and my brother. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother, my brother, and my sister. It's all about the commands. If you have the Spirit inside you, you do the law outside of you. The law is written on your heart. But if you have the Spirit of God inside of you, you can actually do that. And if you're actually doing that, Jesus is saying, that's because you are from a different family. You were born by the Spirit. If you're doing the will of my Father, my Father, then you must be my brother. Because all Jesus wants to do is the will of my Father. There is the death of the letter of the law, but there is freedom in the life of the Spirit of the law. This is the promise he's given us. And so here we come to the table he's given us. It's in this table that he's given us the reality to a meal as a family. We are here to eat before him. I was watching uh, an interview uh, with uh, Elon Musk, uh, which I think a lot of people watch because it's entertaining right now because we want to colonize Mars, which is like, let's go do that. Why not? You know? um, but it's interesting to hear him talk because what's amazing is he talks about sustaining the human species. He's he, he quoted as saying, in order to ensure our survival... Uh, and humans need to be a multi-planet species. And it always baffled me that he and, and, and people think this way, futuristic type, they're always talking about saving humanity or the species. And they're all incredibly intelligent and understand all these things, but I always wonder why in these interviews or these discussions, it's never brought out of, but we are going to die, Right? Like, so maybe we will colonize Mars, and he won't be alive to see it, but he won't be alive. Like, what, 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 so if we're all a species that just dies, why would propagating death on two planets make a difference? You see, those kind of questions never get brought into the interview. And I wish I could just ask. I'd love to just see. Like, that, that's a great idea, but do, do we have to be a two, a multi-planetary dying species? Like, because really, what does it accomplish? It does come to what Jesus is saying here. 
I think the answer is this. See, he's operating in this evolutionary mindset where he actually thinks death created man. We die, evolve, die, evolve, die, evolve. Throughout a series of lots of death, eventually man evolves. The gospel tells us that man created death. That we were made with glory and honor and dignity. And we sinned and died. And death came through man. That there is no solution. There is no solution. Aside from the first Adam. For the apple, if we're talking about family tree, the apple has not fallen far from the tree. He has sinned and we all died in him. There is no hope. There is no gospel. Except for the fact that there is a man who has rose from the grave. He rose from the grave and he is appointed to judge the whole world in righteousness. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, it says in Acts 17. But now he has commanded all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And he has given him assurance of this by raising him from the dead. Do you see? If it was not for Christ's resurrection, nothing matters. Nothing matters. We all die from the first family tree we had in Adam. The good news is this man who is alive has been given tremendous power from the Spirit to raise other children in his household to life. And he only does this first by changing who we are so that we can be changed by what we do. The only way a good tree produces good fruit is not for bad trees to get legalistically feeling like they should try to make good fruit. You have to be made a good tree. You have to be born from above and born by the Spirit. And if we make that tree good, its fruit will be good. Dear Father God, we ask that you would invite our hearts to your table, Lord. That we would make this covenant in absolute truth, earnestness, and gratitude, Lord. We thank you for what you've given us. Lord, we understand that this table is not just a meal, but we are here, Lord, making a covenant before you. We are pledging our allegiance to you, our families, our children, to you. Lord, we thank you and we give you all this freely because you have brought us into your family and made us your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.